Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. This week's episode is the first one that we've recorded remotely during lockdown. Uh, we still have a couple of episodes uh, to put out that we recorded back in uh, February and early March, uh, but the discussions and, and conversations in this episode that we recorded last week feel very timely to things that are going on now, so we've decided we'll put this one out first. We were delighted to be joined by an absolute icon of music, uh, Tori Amos. Uh, Her new book, Resistance, is out now. Uh, Resistance, a songwriter's story of hope, change and courage, to give it its full title. So as I said, this was recorded remotely, so it might have a slightly different uh, flow to a normal episode of Book Shambles with everyone in different locations, but it still has that same shambles feel, so we hope you enjoy it. Remember to get uh, an extended edition of this and all episodes of Book Shambles. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. And not only will you get uh, extended episodes of Book Shambles, get lots of other goodies across the different tiers as well, including a weekly video live stream show and tell show hosted by Robin and Josie. Guests we've had on so far include uh, Ralph Little and Nitin Sawney and Ross Noble. And coming up next week is Rebecca Front. So after you've listened to this episode, go out and get yourself a copy from an independent bookshop, ideally, of Resistance by Tori Amos and sign up to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Here is Robin and Josie and Tori. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Josie is currently, as usual, of course, because it's lockdown, we are, uh, on this occasion, spread across the UK. For once, we're all in the same time zone, which is good. And uh, Josie is now, though you are unable to see this, she's literally looking down at the lunch that's arrived and debating whether she can eat it or whether it's quite crunchy and will become overly amplified for the audience. (laughs) Uh, we should say our guest is Tori Amos, uh, who has a, a second book out and, of course, has, has created an incredible body of work. And, and the, 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 the new book is very it, it, it's called Resistance and it takes songs, her songs, and connects them also to uh, life and politics and activism. And I wanted to start, first of all, with the first thing that you talk about, which is you were very young when you, you were a, a piano player uh, in, in a gay bar in Washington. Is that right? Yes, I was. Um, I'd been kicked out of the conservatory at 11, and my dad was pretty destroyed by that. I'd been accepted at five and um, was studying classical music. And so by the time I was 13, he thought I'd ruined my life, and I wanted to be—I wanted to write my own song. So he and I went downtown to Washington, D.C., and nobody would give us a chance. So there he was in his minister's outfit, and uh, we, we came across this fellow with, I think, some studs around his neck, and um, he was a bouncer, and my dad said, can, can my daughter please play? She's, she's pretty good. And so they let me play for tips, and I realized, guys, that, oh, my God, there are only men in this room, and they're all staring at my father, and they thought he was in a costume. 
<laughs> See, that is such a great story. But, um, you know, th- there's a lot of presumptions made about people, you know, who, who are in the church. And the idea that, you know, your father was 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 happy to to go and sit, you know, in, in, in a gay bar is, is not the immediate presumption people uh, w- would take. No, it isn't. And this was in 1976, U2, so you can imagine at that time, people really didn't talk, not in in the world that I grew up in, which was I was at church four times a week at least, you know, in the choir. I'd go to two services on Sunday. I'd go to youth group at night. I mean, that was just the required thing that a minister's daughter did. And we, I didn't hear about homosexuality. I just didn't get talked about. So when we got back to the church and word got around that I had a, an invitation to play Mr. Henry's in Georgetown, which is a known gay bar, oh, my God, people just hit the steeple. They they just really lost it. And he had to... He, he really had to take a lot of criticism. And he said to them, you know... Are you guys, are you thinking here? There is no safer place for a 13-year-old teenage girl than in an all-gay bar. That's great. And and that is, um, I mean, in terms of your, and also being in Washington, I, I, I know, was that the bar that you said was very close to the White House? There was one that was a few blocks down from the White House. No, that came later when when I'd grown up a bit. I started playing three blocks from the White House at 15. So I played the Georgetown area for about a year and a half. And then by the time I was 15, I was playing happy hour, which meant that my parents couldn't um, chaperone me anymore. And I would get the jobs because I had the repertoire. So if you imagine you have all kinds of um, Washington people coming in there doing their liquid handshakes, their deals, because that's how that's how it's done there. And I didn't understand how Washington worked. It was totally different than they were teaching in high school, I'll tell you that. It must have just been such an unusual thing to be gigging so much as such a young teenager as well. It, yeah, it was. And I, I attribute, I think, my love for being on the road and live performance to having to work up a set list um, every night. Now, happy hour was different than when I got a job across the street from the Hilton at a place called the Carlton. It's changed its name. And that's also three blocks from the White House. And I would play happy hour, which is you're underscoring the lobbyists making their deals and the congressmen and all those, the lawyers and um, really people committing white collar crime uh, while you're playing, you know. kind of thing and they come up and talk to you and say hi honey can you play and you go okay sir and then you realize you're talking to the speaker of the house and it's tip o'neill and you're going oh my goodness what kind of world am i living in but that is such an because that education of seeing people 
out of the zone where they are wearing the, the the strongest mask. I mean, something that's been said by various people I know who kind of met Boris Johnson is they wish that you could see the image of him before the camera is on and just after the camera is on, where you see a very different human being than what is presented to the public. And and that must have been, you know, an incredible thing for you to experience just every now and again thinking, hang on a minute, that's the person that I just saw standing, all the gravitas, sometimes the pomposity and then you see them kind of boozed up and you see them behaving in 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 the the other way that they exist well it's funny i was playing this congressional christmas party and this is before i was 15 i was 14 and um all the other piano players no kidding had gotten the russian flu and so i was the only one that didn't have the russian flu and so um i was like third or fourth down the the call line um, for something like that. That was a pretty big deal to play a congressional Christmas party. So there I was, and everybody was surrounding this man. And so I kind of said, excuse me, sir, um, who do you mind telling me what you do? He said, young lady, I'm the speaker. I said, the speaker of what, sir? And he laughed his head off because that's when I first met Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House. And then he came and sat on my piano bench and we played Bye Bye Blackbird. And then he did a jig and danced to that. And it's just, wow. You know, I it was a completely... Then I started to learn, if you see what I mean, you two. You start to go, oh, okay, this is this is how it works. And this is the power. This is where the power is in Washington. And how did that influence in terms of your development of, of, of viewing politics and in view and, and, and ideas of, of, of resistance and activism? How much do you think, looking back, that how did that educate you in, in, in terms of that understanding? It wasn't until the election year of 1980 when it really, that whole year and into 81, and I was still in high school, um, so, so the election was between Ronald Reagan um, with his running mate, George H.W. Bush. Jimmy Carter was on the Democratic ticket. And then a guy called, one of the Koch brothers, was running on the Libertarian ticket um, as the vice president. Now, I'm sure you all have heard that name, <laughs> the words, the Koch brothers, right? So they're probably, they and the Mercers are two of a few of the most powerful people in America and determining um, who who sits in that Senate and who gets the funds um, and also Congress. And when during that election in 1980, I began to see and understand who that there was a war of ideas going on right off the K Street corridor and those offices were war rooms and they had think tanks and this was all just what I was thinking what is going on here this is like some kind of alternative universe no they're not teaching me this in government class at high school they didn't tell me that you can buy a politician, maybe even buy the presidency of the United States one day. And then in 2010, of course, with the Citizens United ruling, 
in their favor, the Supreme Court ruling in their favor. Then, then it was just the lid was off on how much and and how anonymously um, some of these special interest groups can invest and own a politician. So I really began to just understand that in 1980. And now watching to you know. This week has been, I think, you know, it's it's been, we've seen some quite grotesque things in terms, you know, the the, the tear gassing of, of 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 clergy and others in uh, uh, doing doing peaceful protest for the photo opportunity of a president, and and it has, I mean, this this moment seems to be to, for some people, I think, some of us who are around, you know, around the same age when Reagan came in, it almost feels that those seeds have now grown into this kind of despotic tree that I, I don't know how because I, I think this talking to a lot of people in, in the US this week yeah it's, it's they've never seen a president do anything that is in any way and it, and it feels like such a, a dystopian moment yes absolutely Robin absolutely Josie yes and it's terrifying because because in the autumn people are voting for a system of government so they're either going to vote for a variation of democracy or they're going to vote for an authoritarian government back into power. When you see how William Barr um, marched on out there and cleared um, peaceful protests with tear gas and and pellet bullets and stuff. And what's so shocking is that, I mean, that's the attorney general. That's the law. And you begin to say, oh, my God, I've never seen. And I remember 1968. I was five, but I was at the um, conservatory by then. So I had a I had a memory of of, um, you know, protesting in the late 60s. But I have never seen anything like this from a president and an attorney general in my life. So it's terrifying. It's shocking. And even hearing the way he deflects blame in such a broad and nebulous way onto the concept of anti-fascism. When I think about the consequences that can have in terms of criminalising any and all protest in future, I, I, I find it really, really shocking. And I, I also think then watching people protesting, knowing how brave they are, knowing that even as somebody who's been to protests in this country, I'm not up against police who are kitted up in, you know, ready for war for a peaceful protest. And, and I'm, gosh, I'm just in awe of people who are going out there and staying out there and going out day after day just to keep, you know, keep fighting for justice with this. I, I'm astonished. Yeah, yeah. The peaceful protesters are very brave. And... Um... I, I hope they can all feel a big hug from the three of us because because um, right now in, in the United States of America, if that democracy falls, and democracy is an, a given, I think that the millennials, my nieces and nephews are millennials, and they're bringing up some really interesting points right now, which is they're beginning to see the fabric of democracy fraying. And yes, I, I understand that that um, we have a ways to go until that happens, but it but it isn't a guarantee. And Benjamin Franklin even said that a long time ago. Democracy, yeah, if you can hold on to it. And that's where I feel we are, and that's why these peaceful protesters are so important, because if they don't hold that 
White House accountable and that justice, that bar is so low over it, justice, then the, the problem is we could lose it all. We could lose everything our ancestors fought for. So that's really what we're looking at. It does seem the enabling of, of, of some of these, you know, that we've not called extremist voices sometimes within politics extremists. They've kind of that that, that is it the Overton window, that moving of, of uh, uh, what is considered to be the middle ground. I was just looking up someone who uh, yesterday was writing about the different uh, um, how Trump sees the rest of us. Black people are thugs. Mexicans are criminals. Middle Eastern Latino immigrants are invaders. Black and brown people come from shithole countries. Baltimore is a rat and rodent infested. Islam hates us. Migrants are a Trojan horse. And then he says white supremacists in Charlottesville are very fine people. Anti-Semite Katie Hopkins is respectable, supports Islamophobe Laura Luma, praised incredible crowd that chanted send her back, supported armed militia in Michigan. Now that when you just see that coldly put out in just two tweets there by that journalist, you go that 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 has been strangely normalized. And then now I don't know how you feel, but it does feel that what has just happened has returned it to being abnormal it has it, where it should be well it's it's very clear to me as a songwriter the words the people who use those words are telling you one thing that they believe in the ideology of a slave master let's just let that land that's how that's what those words mean and you have some senators that are supporting this ideology because they're supporting this man, this president. And and they're a gaggle of oligarchs, more than a gaggle, who, who are making huge amounts of money from foreign investors. And even investors in the United States were back to some of these groups that we talked about, that uh, the Mercer support, that's a very powerful family supporting the GOP, and and the Libertarians and the Republicans, the GOP, are very connected, and that's the Koch brothers and Citizens United, and you can look it all up. All these think tanks and special interest groups sit where some of these billionaires hide behind. But it, it really is about not just an economic aristocracy that they're creating, but it's the road to serfdom for those of us who are against that. And and that's really in black and white lettering loud what we have to look at, that some people are, I believe, um, wanting, they have the consciousness of a slave master. And that is why you have people protesting and those protesting peacefully. It's such an empowering moment for democracy and holding these hateful people accountable. It's been that that othering of groups is... There's a thing that I'm sure I've probably mentioned it to you before, Josie. One of the great uh, British playwrights of the of the 60s and 70s and 80s, Dennis Potter. Um, I went to see a screening of two of his plays, brilliant plays. One was called Traitor, which is a, a kind of version of one of the uh, Oxford uh, Cambridge, Cambridge spies, rather, who sold a load of secrets to to Russia and all of that kind of thing. And then the other one was uh, similarly about people selling secrets and destroying lives. And the guy who introduced it, the producer, Kenneth Trodd, said, Dennis always said the least patriotic people 
people, but the ones who were best at using it were the upper classes. He said, because the upper classes, for instance, during the, you know, the, the, the rise of Nazi Germany, the first thought was, well, hang on a minute, maybe we do do a deal with this guy because I want to make sure I've still got all these lands. And the, But they were brilliant at using the flag to disguise the fact that all they were actually, and we see that with, with again, I won't go into British politics, but what we're seeing with uh, William Rees-Mogg and, and some of the things now. We should talk about your book because this is involved in it. This is, you know, the, the idea of as, as artists, um, you know, art does have an importance. Art, art does have a way of, it empowers people. It gives people messages that they might not read if they were in a book or if they were in a lecture. There are ways of getting across ideas. And, and I wanted to ask you, first of all, do you remember the first people that and the first musicians where you got a sense that this is, this is more than a song? Well, my mother would play records for me because she'd worked in a record shop and she had no idea she was going to be a minister's wife. I'll tell you that. And she, her parents had worked in the mills in Carolina, um, the hosiery mills. And they so wanted to break that cycle of um, working those mills, which was hard work. And she was really smart. And so... They saved all their money and they sent her to college and bless her. She fell in love with my dad who um, who had just been in the Navy at the tail end. So, so he had his school paid for him. But anyway, she gave up everything. They didn't go to the wedding, my mother's parents, and she married a minister. And that turned her whole life around. And sad, sad because I think she would have been brilliant um, in in her field, but I got to have her, and I got this amazing DJ playing me music, beautiful music. Um, my goodness, um, Fats Waller, um, Billie Holiday, um, the musicals, musical theater, and then my brother was 10 years older, and he'd bring in the Beatles, he'd bring in the Doors, my father called that devil music, and so the devil music would have to come in and out before my father came back from the church with his Bible, and then my mother and brother would stand there and have me slip in the devil music that I had learned in between, like, Brahms and Debussy, and and my father never caught that I was doing, you know, Led Zepp. He just didn't know, because if you did a variation on the theme and you put it in a certain style, then he couldn't tell, so that was our little joke. And in terms of your writing as well, which is um, when did you because I know that for a lot of people, I've spoken to a lot of people who have found you know certain songs in your work incredibly important to them, incredibly important to often to you know their their survival through very difficult times. When did you start to get a sense did you know those first moments that you might have received a letter or someone came after you a gig and you thought this this means more than just a song, or did you have that sense at the point of sometimes when you were writing? Well, I really began to understand it when I was playing England in the autumn of 91. Um, I was opening for a guy, a, a wonderful artist called Mark Cohen, and people would come outside before his show after I opened for him and would need to tell me their story. And then this continued through the whole tour in 92, the Little Earthquake store. And once I began, um, I'd, I'd stand after every show for two hours and just listen to people's stories. And at a certain point, um, this 
turned into them writing me letters, and they write me letters to this day and hand them to me at a meet and greet or after the show. And that's how I begin to understand what other people are going through, what real people are going through. And um, yeah, they, they affect my work. They push me to, to write different songs, to go after those emotions. So this started, I guess, in the autumn of 1991. That was felt... Um I think that's how you know that the work you're making is truly vulnerable. If people can see that you are putting out yourself in such a way, then people want to connect with it and they do come come forward with, with their stories and stuff. That must have felt in some ways quite like being seen for you. It It was, Josie, because the music industry on many levels – did then and does now, operates on a very commercialized side of art and what advertisers will not stop, particularly on the radio um, in, in the United States. That's how it operates, as you know, a lot of it. Not NPR, the National Public Radio, not that, but a lot of radio operates on advertisers and advertising. So if they say, I don't want this pro-choice feminist being played, then that pro-choice feminist is not going to be played. So a lot of the music industry, they will pick artists, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, or not really talk about it, that they know can pay the bills and that aren't going to to, um, create such a dust-up. And so some artists, I think, in order to become successful, they trim a little bit of their you know, rebellious writing or their activism in their writing, some do, not not all, to in order to break through and get into the door. Now, I tried to do that, and I fell horribly on my face in 1988 um, with an album called Why Can't Tori Read? Because I was chasing, I was filling a slot for the label instead of listening to the muses and and writing um, what my calling was. But I didn't I didn't own my calling, you two. I didn't really own it because it's it's um it's uncomfortable sometimes writing about harrowing stuff. And it's uncomfortable for the record labels, let me tell you. They didn't want me in a gun on the record. But because they said, this is hard to listen to, Tori. Why do we want this on the record? And I was like, because it's uncomfortable. It's supposed to be if you're comfortable with it, then there's something really wrong. So that that's kind of the whole backstory of finding your true north as an artist. And sometimes, for me, it was failure of trying to be something I wasn't because I'm I'm not cut out to be a commercial artist. Some people are, and they hold that well, and there's not a disingenuous vibe with it. But with me, I think the public realized, you're masquerading, lady, so let's see the take off the mask. And so I had to unmask the artist I was hiding. Did you ever find it difficult? When, you, you know, when that popularity came, did you feel under a new pressure or were you like, well, this is good. This has introduced loads of people. And then maybe they will drop off. Maybe there will be a point where I can't maintain the same number of people. But I know that I've managed to get to people who previously this, you know, may not have been the kind of music or the kind of message within the music that, w- that would have been what would they, have gone, they would have gone for. Well, I think at a certain point I, I felt under a microscope and I didn't realize the, the kind of um, 
the sort of examining that people would be doing of me personally. Um, and, and that was overwhelming at a certain point. And I think it was, it was also the time where in the early 90s, some journalists could be, you know, really um, cynical, I think, of ether and the process with the muses and a spiritual connection to whatever that is. I call it the muses, and they've been visiting me since I can remember, since before I could talk. These energies would just come, and I know there's a difference when I'm writing something. I could write something every day, but it doesn't mean anybody should hear it, and it doesn't mean it's any good. But when the muses come, that's where the magic is. And yeah, I have to hammer it out and co-create. I'm the scribe, but it's very different. And in trying to talk about that, um, Robin and Josie, it was sometimes it would be met with laughter and um, ridicule. And so I just stopped talking about it until, I don't know, more recently. It does feel like such a 90s attitude, doesn't it, to absolutely want to stamp out anything spiritual or like more um, more connected to natural things, more connected to kind of mysticism and to really sort of be like, no, no, this is the 90s, history is over. Which, you know, in the modern world, um, yeah, it's it's very interesting to me that that was your experience at that time because I, you know, I, I'm only an adult now. Looking back, I, you know, I wouldn't have seen that there was that attitude towards people talking about creativity in a more like old-fashioned, interested way. Yeah, I th- I I think that a mixture of grunge and rave and um a pretty hard kind of electronic music um, was coming out. And also there was, um, what is the word? Uh, There was a decadence, I think, a decadence kind of attitude. And um, that that was um, a real paradox, attention to uh, the, the energy of, spirituality. And I think lately people have been trying, especially with climate change and becoming more aware of our planet, to to merge um, art and their spirituality. Because I don't know if people can segregate themselves now. This is This is the turning point I think that we're seeing right now in our world. Can we separate ourselves from what we believe and know? I don't I don't think we can anymore. I don't know how you can live with yourself. Um, I know some people might be uh, more hypocritical, but I think some of us are really trying to hold ourselves accountable because it just you, you just feel sick if you if you live one way and then talk about living in in a different way. I think it's very interesting that that idea of of what might occasionally be considered to be mystical, spiritual, whatever. I mean, I think one problem that has happened is that in some ways, organized religion managed to ring fence a lot of ideas, which then made that say, for instance, people in science go kind of, oh, well, that's that's religious because it becomes attached to this kind of quite solid dogma. 
when in fact there's a very blurred i mean we're talking uh, sorry Josie, i'm going to mention it again but the other day i was talking to jane goodall which is undoubtedly going to be the the pinnacle of 2020 for me i think and uh and talking about her career her observations you know her such important observations of chimpanzees and and a change not merely in the understanding of chimpanzees but in the understanding of us that evolution and uh, and she was you know, knocked back by a lot of the officialdom and the official ideas of what science was meant to be and how you were meant to work if you were an observer of another animal. And and I think, and that partly, I think, was because it didn't fit directly into going, it must be numbered, it must be specifically labelled, and that's how things work. And I think, in fact, there is, as you said, there's a much more blurred area as well between our creativity, our evidence-based understanding, and our ability also then to to survive as human beings. Yeah. When people ask me about the muses sometimes, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to explain it, especially if they're, as you were talking about, more... Um, science-based and fact-based because I can't prove it to them. The The one thing that my husband, who's pretty cynical, he's a cynical Brit and he's a sound engineer, and we were recording in 1995 in Ireland and he knew exactly the, the song I was going to record because that session was up. So in those days... It was. I think we were recording on DATs, DAT players, but the set, but it was up, um, and anyway, something just came instead, and it was rhythm, the chordal information, melody lyrics, and that song is Marianne, and when you hear that song, if if you hear it, that was written as you're listening to it. I'd never played it before, and I've never been able to play it like that since. I've had to learn it because it was it was uh, I was the scribe, and Mark saw my husband saw it happen and heard it with his own ears, and he said, "You know, I wouldn't have believed all this, you know, stuff. This I don't know West Coast America spiritual walking bare feet in the canyon, but I saw it and I heard it, and that." Sometimes I tell that story just because it makes the scientists sometimes just turn to swivel just a little bit and say, did that really happen? And then it really did. Yeah, I think when when we get to consciousness and creativity, it doesn't matter if, you know, the adventure, oh, it's all right, we, we've worked it out, Tori, it's, it's the, these neurons here, they're firing, and that's what happens. You know, th- those things don't need to be, you know, I, I think there are a lot of sensations we feel, a lot of kind of experiences where different people will analyse them and receive them in different ways, and it doesn't need to be turned into an equation. And that personal experience, I mean, that I think is one of the, it's like personal experience, personal religion, that personal thing is such an important part as opposed to when anyone then goes and now we can turn it again into a dogma or we can turn it into these and that are good we've worked out the rules and i think especially in creativity that's you know you might know a bunch of rules for being creative but you're never going to be able to write the best joke the best play or the best song by going well i've got the seven rules here Hmm. there we go you might be able to write something which is you know kind of works in a certain way in pop for a specific period of time perhaps but even then, those factories, you can kind of go, that comes from a factory and that comes from so many different possibilities and chance and whatever else was out there. 
Well, I think that's right, Robin. But no, I, I, I was just thinking of some of the physicists that I've been reading about recently in the 30s and 40s and discovered different ideas of kind of quantum theory. And, the, and there's a few of them that when they were asked about that, how they came up with that particular idea, you know, that, and they go, it wasn't me. You know, even within the world, they're going, it wasn't me. I, I, you know, I can't take the uh, the kudos from this. I can't because it just came. And I think that's an interesting thing that even, it's not merely in the arts, that also in, in transcendent moments of, of, of discovery of incredible ideas about our universe, there are scientists who throw their arms up and say, you know what, I kind of, I think it was connected to a dream that I had last night and all of these other things. And then I, and this theory, and it seemed, seemed to work. But I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I can't take responsibility for having come up with that idea. That's so good to hear. Um, I'll never forget when I was watching Carl Sagan. I think it must have been mm, 2016. And, and it was an old tape of him. It was on the, on the computer. And I, I was just called, drawn to him. I'd had a conversation with somebody that works at the recording studio named Adam. And he talked to me he, just out of the blue. He said, you know what, Tor, you should go check out Carl Sagan. And I went, okay, I remember him from eons ago, um, but okay. So I'm just chasing him down on the internet. And he said this thing. He said about humans, he said, we are all made of star stuff. And I just froze and then exploded and ran to the Busendorfer. Now, I didn't know anything about the periodic table, but then the song Bang starts coming, and then this tag of the periodic table happens, and I don't know how that, that, that intersection moment of all of a sudden the periodic table made sense to me, and I don't I don't mean sense in that way, but the fact that we were made of star stuff when you're getting all this rhetoric at the time, even then in America, about immigrants and about this and about, you know, the stuff that we're saying that the American president had said about other rising people who aren't um, white heterosexuals. Yeah, I think there is. I, I mean, I think that's also where that, that great kind of oh it's something that I've, I've done various things about with people but that overlap between science and art and the importance of imagination and that I sometimes I was just sitting out in, in the little garden I've got and sometimes I look at a flower pot that's just down there and I think now uh, my atoms are currently uh, being used in a living thing that is curious you know uh, matter with curiosity as Richard Feynman said and those atoms are currently they're just kind of stuck in a flower pot but some of those atoms that are in the flower pot will eventually find themselves into a fox a squirrel a blackbird a jackdaw into all other kinds of embryos and a lot of my atoms are going to end up being a flower pot or a paving stone or, you know all of those different, <laughs> a piece of granite and I think that all of that movement and that I, I think that connection is, is a is a very it's a very useful way as well of, of of looking at ourselves and all of the things that are on this planet and beyond it yeah i love hearing you i love hearing those ideas when you talk about it like that robin because i don't have that kind of brain but it doesn't mean that i don't love the language or the rhythm or how or how you're saying it i feel like i'm with you in the story. I'm not quite sure what the atoms are doing, but, but, but I'm there, you know, I'm there. But I think also it's another way to foster compassion and connection as well, isn't it? It doesn't matter if the language is 
is scientific or spiritual, the the fact remains that it makes makes one a more inquisitive and loving being, I think, towards everything around you. Well, we could use that right now. That's for sure, Josie. Some compassion. And and hopefully that's what we're seeing this week. We're we're seeing these peaceful protesters, their empathy. And yes, anger. Yes, all kinds of things. Yes, um, had enough of of people being dehumanized. But there there is an empathy that that I'm seeing also in people's eyes, and feeling it coming from them. And that is giving me hope that we can turn this world around somehow. I apologise, but we, we haven't talked for nearly enough about your your book. Oh, yeah, uh, we talked enough about it. It's. I good. hope that was okay, and it is. And I, I, I only got it this morning, so I've, 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 I've read the first hundred pages, and it's. Uh, it, it's. A, I, I love books like that because it, there's a lot of beauty in it, and there's a lot of things that are. I, I like the you know, the old William. Was it William Morris or Ruskin? Which one was it, Josie? You, you got the education on that. The you uh, one. Tell me what it was before. Right, I you should have nothing in your home apart from that, it's which is practical, one. and that which is beautiful. Uh, oh, do you know what? If you'd have just said Morris, I'd have known. Now, because you've said Morris and Ruskin, those are the two that it would be. Um, I think it would be Ruskin. I want to say it'd be Morris, but I think it'd be Ruskin. That's I know Wilde nicked it at one point and did it on his uh, American lecture tours. Uh, um, but yeah, Resistance is 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 great, and it's out. Uh, is it out it's now? Morris. I'm just Morris. <laughs> oh, it was Morris. There, it's just not Trent, our producer, is uh, pretends to be our, our brain and memory quite often and then just puts up these little things. Um, Tori, thank you so much for joining us. It's out, the book's out, Hodder and Stoughton. And uh, and is it, I'm, am I right? Is it out right now? Oh, it's it's out right now. Yeah, that's that's and, brilliant. So, re- resistance, oh, Josie. Also, I have to say thank you for all of your wonderful music that has been the companion to my entire life and will continue to be. Just it's such an exciting thing to get to meet you and say that. <laughs> Well, you know what? One day when we're out of the lockdown and I'm in London, I'd love to pop by where you all are recording and just have a cup of tea with you, too. (laughs) You've been so kind and just great. I so enjoyed this. So thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters for keeping this going. Josie, are you uh, what you off to do now? What's your next project? I'm just writing. I've got to get back into writing. My only creative project at the moment is I'm trying to write some short stories and I have to really really train myself to be more disciplined and focused so that's what i'm doing what about you, know you? What? it won't happen it won't happen i'm 51 and i every morning wake up and think today will be the day where i'm training i'm transcribing a, a, an interview with rusty schweikart from apollo 9 and it's one of the about where he talked about the idea of cosmic birth from the apollo missions and it i'll tell you what it was one of the most delightful conversations I, I've, I've had um thank you very much everyone for listening thank you very much for uh, to trent for producing this we'll be back uh next week with uh, with another book shambles and remember as I said uh, Resistance is out now Thank you very much for thank you very much for listening yes Tori's book is out now as is obviously her uh, incredible back catalogue of music so uh, I imagine a lot of book shambles listeners will already have quite a bit of uh, Tori Amos music so stick an album on and uh, have a read of her fantastic new book 
And if you would like to uh, either find out more about or donate to some of the the causes around Black Lives Matter that um, was spoken about in this episode, a really good website that we've we've all tweeted out is uh, blacklivesmatter.card with two R's dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. That's a, a good little hub website that provides links uh, to make international donations or uh, information, education, awareness, uh, different causes, uh, legal funds and all that sort of stuff. So uh, check out that website as a, as a good starting point for information around all the very important and uh, essential things that are happening with the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment. Have a great week, uh, stay safe, take care, and we will see you with a new episode next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.